This is an audio recording of an award lecture presented at the 2022 Annual Meeting of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Dan, for stepping in for Vitas Bankaitis, who got stuck um, on an airplane and couldn't make it. I really appreciate it. This is a tremendous honor. Thank you all for coming and for this remarkable award. Um, it's very humbling um, and deeply gratifying. Um, uh, I remember meeting Walt Shaw, uh, who founded Avanti Polylipids, uh, when I was a postdoc at one of these meetings decades ago um, as a postdoc. Um, and to be receiving this award, uh, the Avanti Award in Lipids, is, is a, just a truly tremendous honor. So what I'm going to do over the next 20, 25 minutes or so, for the first 10 minutes, I'm going to take you over a bit of a magical mystery tour of my experiences and work in Pietro Kainis and AKT signaling. Um, and then give you a couple of very small vignettes of some of the current work that's going on in the lab um, that is lipid-related. I often get the question of how I got interested in science, especially from young sort of scientists, students, and undergraduates. And I know most of us have um, sort of stories like this that we like to tell. I got interested in science as a teenager wandering around the halls of the Natural History Museum in London where I was growing up. Um, and, but how I really got interested in lipids was when I had the massive fortune of doing my postdoctoral training with Luke Antley, first at Tufts University Medical School um, and then at Harvard um, in the mid-90s. And for those of you who are interested in these sorts of things, um, this is Tufts University Medical School, the MNV building, and this window up here is the laboratory where Piatrukainis was discovered in the mid-1980s. And this is the paper that Lou published that if he ever gets the Nobel Prize for this discovery, this will be it. So I did my postdoc in the mid-90s, um, and in 1991, when I started my postdoc, there were five papers on AKT, the serine threonine kinase that we now all know um, is the major effector of PS3 kinase. Today, there are over 100,000. The very first paper that is credited for the discovery of AKT was really the cloning of the AKT1 and AKT2 genes from a primary human ga gastric adenocarcinoma by Stephen Stahl. But it, the field really doesn't get started until um, late 1991, around the time I started my postdoc, when um, Velikoza, Joe Testa, Stephen Stahl, and Phil Ciclis published this paper in Science on the cloning of the retrovirus and the proto-oncogene that, that encodes the, the mammalian AKT1 um, gene. And then one of the most seminal, I would argue, uh, papers in the mid-90s in the signaling field was when Tom Frankie, uh, Phil Ciclis, and Dave Kaplan um, showed that AKT, the serine threonine protein kinase AKT, functions downstream of receptor tyrosine kinases signaling through PI3 kinase. But the molecular mechanism had not yet been decoded. And myself, working with Tom Frankie in, late, in the late 90s, showed that, um, as Dan mentioned earlier, that the lipid products of PI3 kinase can bind to, engage, and weakly activate um, the activity of AKT in both in vitro and in cells and tissues. So uh, it was a tremendous honor to receive this award, and some of you in the audience were kind enough to write congratulatory, congratulatory emails. And one of them, an old friend of mine, who it turns out did a sabbatical in Lou's lab in the mid-90s and working in the, same, in the bench alongside me, wrote to me and with, this, with this, uh, this quote, a greasy character, if there ever was one. 
And the kinds of experiments that I was doing back in the 90s uh, were to understand the molecular mechanism by which P3 kinase lipids engage AKT were as following, sort of ma making lipid micelles uh, that contain P3, 4, P2, and PIP3, um, and looking at the activation of the protein kinase activity of AKT in vitro. Um, and finding that, for example, PI34P2 could weakly activate the AKT intrinsic in vitro kinase activity, whereas other uh, lipids, other phosphonositides, could not. This was actually uh, recapitulated by two other labs at the same time. And I should point out that some 25 years on, the, the molecular explanation as to why PI34P2 can weakly activate the activity of AKT remains undefined. Other experiments that were going on at the same time were to understand how P3 kinase lipids were synthesized um, in cells in, in, in response to stimulation with uh, ligands that engage receptor tyrosine kinases or G-protein coupled receptors. And, and uh, using um, um, a P32 labeling of cells and then purifying lipids by HPLC and getting profiles such as these where you find a rapid potent uh, biosynthesis of PI34P2 and PIP3 in cells within minutes to hours in two different waves. One first wave um, post-stimulation with PDGF in this example, and then a, a much larger, in terms of amplitude, wave of uh, PI3 kinase activity detected um, at later times and coincidence with progression through the G1 phase of the cell cycle. Again, the specific mechanisms that account for this, even 20 years on, um, remain to be defined. About uh, five years ago, uh, we had a symposium um, here in Philadelphia um, at Fox Chase to sort of commemorate 25 years of research in the AKT field um, that also coincided with a review I wrote with my friend and colleague, Brendan Manning, highlighting 25 years of research in this field. Um, it was a lot of fun, this, this uh, sort of uh, reminiscing with old friends and colleagues. Uh, Luke Antley was there, Phil Cichlis, Joe Testa, Ramon Parsons, who discovered the P10 tumor suppressor, and uh, Tony Hunter as well, who's here down in the audience. So I'm just going to give you now a few minutes of basics to bring everyone up to speed on PS3 kinase signaling and AKT signaling. Um, this is a classical signal relay pathway that is initiated through uh, uh, cell surface receptors, all manner of cell surface receptors, that activates PS3 kinase, and that culminates in the production, the biosynthesis of PIP3, which is the most negatively charged lipid in the cell, and this immediately tells you, gives you a clue as to the molecular mechanism by which it initiates signal relay at membranes, both the plasma membrane and endomembranes. It recruits normally cytosolic inactive effectors, such as AKT, to the two membranes, both plasma membrane and endomembrane, which induces a conformational change in AKT, releasing the pH domain, which is auto-inhibitory for the kinase. They're then that then follow uh, a number of ordered phosphorylation events that block the enzyme in the catalytically competent conformation. The PDK1 and mTORP2 complex carry out these functions, and then AKT is free to translocate to, multi to multiple intracellular locations to carry out its function, which is phosphotransfer to a growing number of substrates. The major sites of phosphorylation of AKT are threonine 308 and serine 473, at least in the AKT1 gene or protein, but there are, there are, as I illustrated in the review that we wrote for Cell a few years ago, a whole range of other post-translation and modifications in AKT, from phosphorylation to methylation to uh, ubiquitylation to glycosylation even, that whose molecular function remain poorly defined. 
I spent the first 10 years of my lab's career defining the, the, the functions of AKT1, 2, and 3 that exist in mammals and humans. And as first identified by Maury Birnbaum here at Penn, uh, the three AKT isoforms are not functionally redundant. In fact, they have non-overlapping functions in both human physiology and disease, as was first identified by Mori, who generated the AKT1, 2, and 3 knockout mice, revealing non-overlapping uh, phenotypes, at least in the context of development. And then I, and my, my own lab and many other labs showed that uh, AKT1 and 2 in particular have non-overlapping functions in the pathophysiology, such as cancer, showing that, for example, AKT1 is an inhibitor of invasive migration and metastatic dissemination of a number of human cancers, whereas AKT2 promotes the same phenotype, even in the same cancer. Equally interesting are the fact that the way that the AKT1, 2, and 3 genes in the context of cancer contribute genetic phenotypes are quite uh, non-redundant. Whereas AKT1 is primarily mutated by somatic mutations that lead to hyperactivation of the kinase in an oncogenic sense, the AKT2 and 3 genes uh, in both breast and other cancers um, are genetically deregulated by copy number gains or amplification, as defined here by analysis of TCGA datasets. So just com coming back full circle, um, this pathway which has in my lab, AKT center stage, signals, as I argued in our review, uh, to three evolutionarily conserved multifunctional nodes. The three AKT substrates which were amongst the first discovered, the forkhead boxo family of transcription factors, the glycogen synthase kinase 3 enzyme, and the tumor suppressor complex TSC2, which are phosphorylated and inactivated by AKT upon phosphorylation, and then go on to transduce by signal relay me mechanisms that we understand um, considerably well, um, all phenotypes that are associated with diseases such as cancer in terms of cell survival, cell proliferation, metabolism, growth, and other phenotypes. There are, of course, a whole host of other AKT substrates whose phosphorylation is um, impacted by um, the AKT pathway, and some of these are listed down here. And I should say that a general rule of thumb that phosphorylation of AKT substrates by AKT serves to typically inactivate their function. There are exceptions to this rule. The Pietri kinase pathway is the most frequently deregulated pathway in all human cancers. In aggregate, if you ask TCGA the question, genes that contribute to Pietri kinase AKT signal relay, including Pietri kinase and AKT themselves, but also tumor suppressors such as P10, FLIP, um, TSC1 and TSC2, in aggregate, when you look at mutational events, fusion events, amplification, and deep deletions in the tumor suppressors, there are certain cancers such as endometrial and uterine carcinoma that over 80% of patients display one or more um, alterations at the genetic level in these genes. Consequently, over the past two decades, um, the medicinal chemists, the pharmaceutical industry, and biotech companies have been developing small molecule inhibits, inhibitors to attenuate this pathway in, for clinical benefit and arriving at uh, the development of uniquely specific and exquisitely potent inhibitors, especially to both P3 kinase and AKT, both pan-P3 kinase inhibitors, isoform-selective P3 kinase inhibitors, as well as catalytic and allosteric AKT inhibitors, some of which are only, only a fraction of which are illustrated here. And it took about 40 years, this is especially important for the young scientists in the audience, um, be persistent. It took well over 40 years since the initial discovery of the enzyme 
to the approval by the FDA of the first class 1A pediatric kinase inhibitor, alpalisib, um, as was informed by the phase three clinical trial shown here on the right that showed in that alpalisib, a pediatric kinase alpha and catalytic inhibitor in combination with endocrine therapy, fulvestrant in ER positive breast cancer patients with a pediatric, oncogenic pediatric kinase alpha mutation showed a doubling of progression-free survival in patients with PIX3CA mutation. And so this was the first pediatric kinase alpha um, inhibitor that was approved by the FDA. There will no doubt be others coming along. With respect to AKT, where my career has been, um, there exist catalytic, allosteric, and covalent inhibitors that are under preclinical and clinical evaluation. Some of them are depicted here. And the lead compounds here are the genentic compound, GDC0068, or ipatacertib, and um, the astrogenica compound, capivacertib, or AZD5363. But the story with these, none of these are yet approved. And there was significant hope a few years ago when the Lotus Phase II clinical trial of ipatacertib or GDC0068, in combination with paclitaxel, standard of care chemotherapy in triple negative breast cancer patients, showed a doubling of progression-free survival in that patient population compared to placebo plus paclitaxel. So there was real hope that the Phase three trial uh, would show the same benefit and approval of this combination, the very first AKT inhibitor to be approved. But unfortunately, about a year and a half ago, it was reported at ESMO um, and then at ASCO that, in fact, the opportunity phase three trial of the same exact combination, hepatocertib in combination with paclitaxel in triple negative breast cancer showed no benefit whatsoever compared to placebo plus paclitaxel. So um, I do believe that AKT inhibitors will be approved in the future. Um, the reasons for this remain unclear. Maybe it may be it may well be down to clinical trial design, but um, we are awaiting for this uh, to progress. So why have AKT and pietrokinase fared so poorly? Well, one, of course, is lack of selectivity. These are catalytic inhibitors that cross over to other AGC kinases. Toxicity on, uh, on target, dose-limiting toxicities, such as hyperglycemia and rashes, are very frequently observed in patients on these trials. We know with, a, with a considerable detail feedback mechanisms that contribute to bypass activation of both AKT and other surrogate pathways um, that limit um, efficacy of these drugs in the clinic. And of course, there are kinase-independent functions of some of these kinases, including AKT, that I'll get back to in a moment. And to address this, um, and I'm going to move on to the first story that we've been working on, I teamed up with my friend and colleague, Nathaniel Gray, formerly at the DFCI and now at Stanford, to develop targeted protein degradation strategies as an alternate strategy for targeting AKT. These degraders, or protacts as they're known, use a very different pharmacology to inhibit signaling enzymes such as AKT, where you generate a, a bifunctional molecule that consists of a warhead that targets your protein of interest, in this case, AKT, hooked up with a linker to a different warhead that targets an E3 ubiquitin ligase. And in this project, we decided to use the warhead GDC0068 or, or um, epatocertib with a linker that, that couples to lenalinamide, which is a ligand that engages the cerebellum E3 ubiquitin ligase. These degraders potently, specifically, and rapidly degrade the target of interest, in this case AKT, in a dose-dependent and time-dependent manner, as you can see here, over a period of hours. There is, there is degradation of AKT, one, two, and three. These are pan-AKT degraders because 
the parent compound, GDC0068, inhibits all three AKT isoforms. There is no selectivity. Kinome scans such as these that, that, that profile every kinase in the human kinome um, show that you can actually increase the specificity of binding the degrader to the, to, AK, to the target of interest over the parent compound. As you can see on the left and right, this is a degrader and this is a parent uh, compound. And, and proteomic analysis um, sort of support this where um, profiling about 10,000 proteins across a a proteomic experiment. The only proteins that are um, significantly degraded are AKT1, 2, and 3. RNF1166 is a known lenalinamide target. So these are exquisitely potent and exquisitely specific and outperform the parent compound in terms of selectivity. And in terms of inhibiting proliferation, which is what this pathway controls, you can see in the red curve that the AKT degrader, INY03041, outperforms the parent compound, GDC0068. Lenalidomide itself as a ligand has absolutely no effect on this proliferation assay that, uh, that, that measures um, GR scores, so true cellular proliferation. And we also have a negative control in the green, which does not in, in the green curve, which does not engage cerebron and therefore functions as a bulky inhibitor and, and performs in the same exact way as the inhibitor itself. So we published this in CellCambio, having developed a potent and selective first-in-class AKT degrader, which showed anti-proliferate effects um, that were stronger than catalytic inhibition. Um, and, however, revealed relatively slow degradation kinetics. And what we have done since then is developed a second generation degrader. I don't have time to go into this. We'll soon be submitting this for publication. This is the same idea. It, we are using a different warhead to target a different E3 ligase, VHL, um, but using the same warhead to target AKT, GDC0068. And uh, these degraders are remarkably potent, and um, we hope that they have true uh, potential as preclinical and clinical compounds. This is a collaboration we have with AstraZeneca, which shows anything under the line shows that the degrader outperforms the catalytic inhibitor. And these are color coded by cell lineage. We have, prof we have profiled about 1,000 cell lines uh, across about um, 30 different lineages. Um, and, and you can see, for example, that lineages such as breast cancer um, are significantly enriched in terms of their, the, the inhibition of cellular proliferation by degrader over the catalytic inhibitor. This is not surprising because breast cancers, for example, have, are littered with Pietri kinase pathway um, mutations um, and uh, display AKT hyperactivation compared to normal cells. Okay, I'm just going to finish up with a second vignette. Um, and these sort of slides that people who don't work in signaling sort of tends to make them somewhat nauseous. Um, these, are, of course, are, is a sort of a systems level view of, of signaling. Um, and just sort of zooming in, you can sort of see the mTORC1 and mTORC2 signaling, a sort of network. But if you think this is bad, if you work in the metabolism space, you see these kinds of diagrams that makes most people downright angry. Perhaps the only thing that you can sort of recognize is this tricarboxylic acid cycle here in the middle somewhere. So how do you sort through this mess? And well, as, as a basic scientist, uh, we have gained tremendous traction and learned a tremendous amount by taking a reductionist approach, by zooming in 
um, into particular signaling and metabolic pathways. And that's what I want to tell you about today, zooming into um, a cofactor that I think you all know very well, coenzyme A. Coenzyme A mediates cellular carbon flux. It is a carbon shuttle inside cells. It receives carbon units from glycolysis and then fuels coenzyme, which fuels coenzyme A biosynthesis and ultimately uh, resulting in acyl or acetyl-CoA species that fuel the, the, the TCA cycle, that fuel beta oxidation, and fuel steroid um, and isoprenoid um, biosynthesis and protein acetylation. And the one mechanism that you're all, I'm sure, familiar with is histone acetylation as a major regulation of the chromatin landscape in cells. So a tremendously important um, cofactor in all cells. And the way that coenzyme A de novo biosynthesis is initiated is through vitamin B5, also known as pantothenate. It's a, very, it's a relatively simple um, linear metabolic pathway that requires three steps, vitamin B5, cysteine, the and the AMP moiety of ATP, ultimately generating this species coenzyme A. And um, a few years ago, Christian Dibble, who's a postdoc in the lab, is now an assistant professor, did a very simple metabolomics experiment asking the question, what are metabolites that are upregulated in response to piathrokinase activation? And what is their response, what is their biosynthesis look like when you inhibit the piathrokinase pathway? And many metabolites that had been identified in the literature as being regulated by the piathrokinase NAKT pathway um, were revealed. But one in particular that was not, um, had not been um, identified um, was indeed pantothenate. And so this is a story I want to tell you about today. Now, you may have not um, come across pantothenate or vitamin B5. You certainly don't think about it every day. But I'm willing to bet that many of you used it this morning because it is the major constituent of the Pantene line of hair care products peddled by Johnson & Johnson. It has been argued that vitamin B5, which is the major constituent of this line of hair care products, um, has been used for years in the hair care product industry because it's of its alleged ability to penetrate, strengthen, and thicken hair. And I don't know if you recognize this young lady, but she is Giselle Bunchen, or Mrs. Tom Brady, the wife of the former New England, quarterback, New England Patriots quarterback. Uh, in addition to receiving uh, vitamin B5 uh, through your hair care products, humans are not able to biosynthesize vitamin B5. We have to take it up by the diet. So how does the piathrokinase pathway regulate um, uh, coenzyme A biosynthesis? I'm going to show you a series of um, experiments that illustrate this using tracing experiments and metabolomics in which we give to cells labeled vitamin B5, and I don't have time to go into the details, and then profiling by mass spec um, the uh, biosynthesis of both CoA in blue and acetyl-CoA in red. And you can see that in response to insulin stimulation of cells that would activate piathrokinase AKT, you get a massive upregulation or biosynthesis um, of both CoA and acetyl-CoA, and this is uh, quantitatively inhibited by two structurally unrelated piath catalytic piathrokinase inhibitors. What is the mechanism by which piathrokinase regulates um, coenzyme and acetyl-coenzyme A biosynthesis? In the vitamin B5 or the pantothenate-CoA biosynthetic pathway, there are four major steps. The pantothenate kinases, one through four or one through three, um, and then three other enzymes depicted here. And if you look at the, the, the 
amino acid sequence of these four enzymes, you notice immediately that the pantothenic kinases, which represent the rate-limiting step in this pathway, contain within them a consensus phosphorylation sequence that conforms to the minimal consensus that AKT phosphorylates, which is an arginine X, arginine, um, arginine XX, arginine X phosphoacceptor at the, at the zero position. Whereas the other enzymes that contribute uh, to um, flux through this pathway, PPCS, PPCDC, and COASI, do not contain AKT consensus phosphorylation motifs. So this immediately gave a clue as to how uh, Piatricanes AKT could contribute to CoA biosynthesis. And sure enough, in signaling experiments such as these, where you stimulate cells with insulin with or without a Piatricanes inhibitor, you get, um, and in using an antibody that detects the phosphorylated consensus motif that AKT likes to phosphorylate, you see that PANC2 and PANC4 are stimulated in an insulin and PI3 kinase dependent manner in these immune complex um, um, experiments. And then when you start to knock out using either siRNA, shRNA, or CRISPR, these PANC1, PANC2, and PANC4, which again are rate-limiting for, for flux through this pathway, you get a rather surprising result. When you knock out both PANC1 and PANC2, you get the predicted result. If this was a positive signal, okay, you get suppression of uh, coenzyme A in metabolite abundance. And this is measuring all acyl-CoA species, not only um, acetyl-CoA, but malonyl-CoA, butyryl-CoA, et cetera, et cetera especially when you knock out or siRNA out to deplete um, PANC2. But when you knock out PANC4, you actually get a, an increase in um, acyl-CoA species, which would be indicative of a negative regulation of this pathway, suggesting that PANC4 is a suppressor of coenzyme A biosynthesis, which would sort of be contrary to uh, thinking that this is a positive signal. Well, it turns out that PANC4 is not even a kinase. It's a pseudokinase. It's actually a metabolite phosphatase. And this was also highlighted by the fact that when you take PANC, when you, when you, when you CRISPR out PANC4 from cells that have a hyperactive pathway due to an oncogenic AKT mutation, um, and you reintroduce wild-type PANC4, you, get a you, get, you actually get suppression of cell growth, as shown in this assay, which is dependent on the phosphorylation status um, of the pantothenic kinase 4 at the AKT site. And if you look at the linear sequence of pantothenic kinase 4, as I said, it's a pseudokinase. It lacks the necessary residues for catalysis. But what it does have is a, a domain that uh, conforms to the family of phosphatases known as DUF89. And aspartate residues would be, which would be consistent with being a metabolite phosphatase. And I'll skip this in the interest of time to show you that indeed PANC4 is actually a metabolite phosphatase, not a uh, pantothenate kinase, because when you make uh, mutations at the conserved aspartate residues to alanine, you get uh, complete um, attenuation of both dephosphorylation of a generic uh, phosphatase substrate, such as paranitrophenylphosphate, or actually phosphopantothene, which is an intermediate in the coenzyme A biosynthetic pathway. And when you make the same conserved uh, mutations in the um, aspartic residues required for phosphatase activity, um, you can essentially rescue the ability of the wild-type PANC4 to suppress cell growth, both in 2D on the left and 3D on the right. And I wanted to end the presentation with an actual lipid experiment in the spirit of this award. So we did a lipidomics experiment, profiling thousands of lipids. 
um, which gave us a very profound result. In these knockout cells where you knock out PANG4 and reintroduce wild type, you get a lipidomics profile shown on the left, profiling ceramides, um, phospholipids, and many other species. If you make the phosphatase inactive mutant allele and reintroduce that in the knockout background, you get a profound alteration in the lipid profile. This makes sense because CoA and acyl-CoA fuel de novo lipid biosynthesis. The consequences of this are the alterations in cell growth that I showed you in the previous slide. And so the model that we've developed in this story, and unfortunately I'm just giving you a brief vignette, hopefully this paper will appear in press soon, is that in response to insulin and growth factors that activate P3 kinase, lead to activation of AKT, there are two events that fuel CoA biosynthesis from vitamin B5. PANK2, we believe, is a positive signal through phosphorylation by AKT, but you need relief of suppression of PANK4, which serves as a break in this pathway in unstimulated cells. Once AKT phosphorylates PANK4, it relieves this suppression, allowing flux to this pathway and biosynthesis of CoA. To get you to acetyl-CoA and other acyl-CoA species, you need a second step, and this step is catalyzed by ATP citrate lyase. Well, it turns out that uh, years ago, Katie Wellen um, showed that ATP citrate, ATP citrate lyase, or ACLY, is also an AKT uh, um, substrate. And phosphorylation of ACLY by AKT promotes, CoA, uh, promotes acetyl-CoA biosynthesis from CoA. And it also turns out that AKT is a major driver of glycolysis, as shown on the right-hand side, that through glucose, generating citrate, which is required for ATP citrate lyase, to fuel acetyl-CoA biosynthesis. So throughout evolution, stimulation of the piatric kinase AKT pathway has generated three major mechanisms to produce acetyl-CoA through the pantothenic kinases, through ATP citrate lyase, and through glycolysis, ultimately resulting in acyl-CoA biosynthesis and de novo lipid biosynthesis, all of which is required for biomass production during cell growth. So I want to finish up with uh, arguably, oh, I wanted to give you some musings in terms of, before I give thanks, where, where, does, the path, where does the field go from here? These are just my own personal thoughts. I thoroughly um, hope and expect that AKT inhibitors will be approved for therapeutic use in humans in the next few years. We will be able to generate allele-specific drugs, both AKT isoform-specific drugs and mutant-specific inhibitors. There are oncogenic mutations in the AKT genes that render them oncogenic, and these are found in patients with appreciable frequencies. We will be able to develop um, allele-specific um, inhibitors. We need to decode location-specific function of AKT signaling, both in terms of isoforms. Um, there's a, there's a, a growing field looking at the nuclear function of AKT isoforms that we understand, um, in, that we have for which we have an incomplete understanding. As I already mentioned, there are kinase-independent functions of AKT. We understand we, there is an incomplete understanding of these. And although I've been going on about AKT for the last 30 minutes, we know full well that there are other effectors of the piatrikinase pathway that contribute to both normal physiology and disease. Um, and these are very poorly understood mechanisms for which there also exist, for which we have very poor reagents and tools. And this really is an area that I think needs to be explored. I don't know if any of this is going to pan out, but if it does, you heard it here first. 
I need to give thanks to my current lab, uh, the tremendous talented postdoc students and technicians. The, 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 the story that you first heard was by Emily Erickson on the, the development of AKT degraders. She recently defended her thesis, is currently on the job market. And then the story on the pantothene kinases in the PS3 kinase uh, and coenzyme A biosynthetic pathway was all done by Christian Dibble, who is now an assistant professor at Harvard. Um, our website, my Twitter handle, importantly, all of the agencies that have funded our work over the last 25 years or so. And if you should ever find yourself walking or driving around Boston um, or the Harvard Medical School area and you happen to see this car with this license plate, you'll know who it is. And then one of the best pieces of advice that I received as a junior faculty um, many years ago is make your last slide the most interesting one because arguably if um, it's the last thing that the audience will see and they're going to remember it if they've remembered nothing else. So I want to give thanks to the society, the ASBMB, um, all of you for coming um, and importantly Avanti Polar Lipids for this tremendous honor. I've put together a vignette of every single person that has been in my lab over the past 20 years. I've been deeply committed to the training um, of, of junior scientists, especially women in STEM, and hopefully this, uh, the, the, these um, headshots illustrate this. I truly am fortunate to have been able to stand on the shoulders of giants, and I certainly wouldn't be standing here if it were not for four remarkable mentors, advisors, friends, and colleagues that I've had both at the beginning of my career um, to the present day. And these include my former mentor, Luke Antley, um, and also uh, John Blennis, formerly at Harvard, now at Wild Cornell, Joan Brugge, currently at Harvard, and Ben Neal, um, formerly at Harvard and now at NYU Langone. They have advised me, um, become friends, um, and truly it's been a pleasure to work with these individuals over the past 20 years. And on a more personal note, um, there's a group of people that I always thank. Um, it's especially important in this context to um, thank my mom and dad who raised me to uh, always be excellent in what you do at work and always be humble in the way you approach uh, science and life. And finally, my wife and our four children who um, make life very interesting. Thank you all for this tremendous honor. Um, it's really a humbling experience. Thank you for staying. Enjoy the rest of the meeting. I'm happy to hang around afterwards to talk to you about piastrikinis, AKT, or Pantene shampoo. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this lecture. It was recorded in April 2022 in Philadelphia at the ASBMB annual meeting, held in conjunction for the final time with the Experimental Biology Conference. In 2023, the ASBMB annual meeting will be held in Seattle. Learn more at discoverbnb.asbmb.org.